Amen. The title of today's message is Wars and Rumors of Wars. Uh, the title comes from a line on the lips of our Lord Jesus in his famous sermon, the Olivet Discourse. It's named the Olivet Discourse because it's a discourse that was given on the Mount of Olives, hence the name Olivet Discourse. It's a very popular teaching that we find inside of the Gospels, and today we'll have an opportunity to look at some sections of that teaching and reflect on it, but up front, let me just give you a snippet from it, and I'm going to give you a snippet from King James because I love the Old English on this one. Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse 6, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye not be troubled, for these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. We're going to be talking this morning about the end, about the last days. The fancy $2 word for that is eschatology, ology, study of. Eschatos, the last things or the end. Here we see Christ speaking of the end. Here you have this reference to this Olivet Discourse that gives us this eschatological data about what God is up to in the world in the last days. Indeed, we are living in a day where there is what Jesus was speaking of 2,000 years ago, war and rumor of war. Last month, Russia invaded Ukraine, and we are witnessing the largest conventional military attack on a European state since World War II which has now triggered Europe's largest refugee crisis since the Great War, with over 3.7 Ukrainians leaving the country and millions more fleeing their homes to find somewhere in the country to hide. In the providence of God, while I was away from the country, we actually had a, a pastor who does ministry there in the land come and bring the word to us as a church, and that was a rich message. In today's message, I want to help us to process some of this from Scripture. Maybe some of the questions that you are getting as a believer as you process it. And what we're going to do is process it according to God's Word. We have come to look into God's Word, and so you need God's Word. You need to be ready to turn into God's Word because that's what I'm going to be doing, taking you into God's Word. Now that said, let me tell you what I'm not going to be doing. In this message, I'm not giving political commentary on the development of the Russia-Ukrainian conflict following the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. I'm not getting into the 94 Treaty of the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear War Weapons, nor am I getting into the Budapest Mem Memorandum on Security Assurances, nor am I getting into the 99 Charter of the European Security, nor am I getting into NATO, nor am I getting into the 2004 Ukrainian presidential election, nor am I talking about the Orange Revolution protests in Ukraine from 2004 to 2005, nor am I going to talk about the anti-Orange protests, nor am I going to pontificate about Putin, nor am I going to get into Zelensky and analysis of, of him, nor am I going to talk about the 2014 Revolution of Dignity, aka the Maiden Revolution, uh, nor am I going to talk about the subsequent invasion and annexation of the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine. Not going to be doing that. Not going to be doing that. <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing. The current situation is the result of a complicated political and historical dynamic between Russia, Ukraine, the United States, NATO allies, weapons companies, uh, nationalism, historical revisionism, and more. Here's the other thing. We have come here today not to hear political analysis, but to hear biblical analysis and gospel preaching. 
And it's a sad indictment on our churches in recent years how political church pulpits have become devoid of law and gospel preaching, exposition of scripture, and instead are focused on preaching, uh, pastors, and pontifications about current events. In the last few few years, I've seen a troubling increase of these sorts of things. Jesus warned that in the last days there would be wars and rumors of wars. The Bible further warns of another characteristic in the last days. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul warned that in the last days people would become lovers of themselves and they would oppose the sound teaching of God's Word. In the next chapter of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul charges the readership to stand firm in the preaching of the Word. And he, and he says the time will come when they will not endure in sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires who will turn people away to myths or what is often referred to today as fake news. This is a mark of the last days that there will be rumors of, of war and war and that God's people or the people who gather in the name of God would be given over to preaching anything and everything besides sound doctrine and the call of the gospel. I hear preachers acting like experts on all sorts of things from critical theory to epidemiology to international relations and, and more. And people craving it and posting it and devouring it. Knowing the last days will be marked by this sort of narcissism of churches and wars in the world, it is vital for us to come craving the pure milk of God's Word. Of course, we also, in God's common graces, want to crave a right understanding of current events, to be sure. We want to know how to think critically about things that are going on in the world. But in this sacred desk, as it has been called in the Reformation, in in the pulpit, we come in this sacred hour to hear God's Word. And committed to this end and the desire of equipping our church and our saints Here we come to the text of Scripture, and here we come at the very beginning to lay a firm foundation. We must begin all things, all of our understanding, in the God who is. Not just any old God, but the God who is. Not the figment of your own imagination, gods, but the God who is. The God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. The God who created the world. The God who in love breathed life into creation. The God of of love, whose love was unrequited and creation rebelled against Him. As a result of rebelling against the giver of life, life was taken back. As a result of rebelling against the one who gave order to society, humanity has spiraled into disorder. We have fallen into the fall. And that brings us to the first point on your outline today, the fall and necros. We begin with proclamation of who God is. We begin with the reality of God's love for His creation and giving it life. We begin with the foundation of that rebellion against the God who is. We begin with the book of Genesis where it all begins with the Creator God, with this tragic rebellion. And in, in, in following this rebellion, you have death that comes into the creation. Life is taken back, as I said a moment ago. You have in front of you the word necros, which is a word that is used inside of the Bible to describe the taking back of life. Here is an example of necros in Scripture in Acts 5.10, where you have the account of the death of Ananias and Sapphira, his, his wife, and there you see necros used. It's a way of saying death in the Scripture. Death is separation. You think of the biological separation of the body and the soul in death when you 
flat line. When the body is, is dead, there is a separation of the soul from the body. We think of necros and separation in terms of the creator and the creation. There's a separation that has taken place when our forefathers declared rebellion against God. Now we are separate from God. God in His grace has responded to this great chasm and separation. He in His grace has slowed the effects of this disorder, dysfunction, disease, and death. God in His grace is unfolding a plan for sinners in the fallen creation. I have reference to you in my proclamation, Genesis 1 and 2. I have in mind now Genesis chapter 3 where God comes on the heels of fallen humanity and He promises to bring one through the seed of the woman who would overthrow the kingdom of darkness that has encroached itself in the creation and this spiraling of disorder, dysfunction, and death. We must understand the storyline of the Bible if we are to comprehend the current affairs of our day in any meaningful way. Further than understanding the storyline of the Bible, we must understand its center. And its center is one in history, the historical Jesus of Nazareth. The God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. The man who is the historical Jesus of Nazareth. He is one who existed before he stepped in history because he is the eternal God. The triune God. He is the Son who enfleshed himself and stepped into history. As I was saying, God responded to the necros, the death, the separation, by closing the separation. There is a separation between God and humanity, and so God the Son comes and becomes a man so that he can stand in that chasm. As man, he can die in our place. Death is what is deserved for those who have rebelled against the giver of life, and so as man, he can die in our place, and as God, he has the prerogative to forgive, and thank God that God is a forgiving God, amen? And so he comes in the flesh to offer that literally, to offer forgiveness. He offers forgiveness by making the payment in the place for us as a substitute for us. Now, this happens in real history. This, this is real history. First century, the eternal Son in the flesh comes and dies. And this history is still alive today as, as His words echo out into creation, calling you to come to Him and be forgiven. Calling you to not trust your own works to make yourself right before God. Calling out to you to see that things aren't right, but behold the one who will make you right. And he is mighty to save and to forgive and to love and to close the separation and to bring you in. This is the patient plan of God. For thousands of years before the coming of the historical Jesus, he was unfolding these promises, beginning there, what I referenced, Genesis chapter 3, that he would send the one who would come. He makes these promises, and these promises are, are rolling out, and with these promises we see the patience of God in response to this rebellion. I think of 2 Peter chapter 3, Beginning in verse 8, look at this verse. Do not let this one fact escape your notice. St. Peter writes, Beloved with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And this is why we call out on Sunday the God who is, and we, we share with you what He has done, and we call you to respond 
to repent, which is a word that means to turn from your sin and turn from your trust in yourself, turn from your own ideas about who God is and receive the true and living God, to, to turn because He's patient towards you and this whole plan that's unraveling in history. Look, there's not a renegade molecule in the universe. There's not a renegade dictator in the universe. Uh, Putin, Zelensky, Biden, whoever, they are, they are not operating apart from the sovereign hand of God. He is moving it all and he's patiently doing so. Now you have in front of you these, these verses from 2 Peter, specifically verses 8 and 9. I need you to see what comes before verse 8 and what comes after verse 9. There's a sandwich here that's eschatological. I'll show it to you. Look at verse 7. Read it in its fullness. By His Word, the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, kept for a day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this fact, what fact? That the eschaton will come. The end, the last days will come. Don't let that escape you. Don't let it escape you. With the Lord, you know, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, you see. The Lord isn't slow about His promises. Some count slowness, but He's being patient. That's why it's taking these thousands of years. Because He's not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful for that. Because I, I, I got saved, you know, somewhere in the last 40 years or so. Uh, somewhere in there, uh, the Lord was gracious towards me. I'm thankful He didn't come back 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Because then I, I wouldn't be able to experience what I'm experiencing. But one day it's going to end. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. This is written in the first century. This is, this is before our modern understandings of thermodynamics and uh, our understanding that the universe is running out of us usable energy and that we're going to reach a, you know, an ultimate heat death and the thing's going to, whoom, you know, that's technical Greek, whoom. It's just, it's going to happen that way. And we're told in Scripture what we know today to be scientifically true. It's, it's all going to burn up. And it won't be because of the nature it won't be because of the cosmological constants dictating the end of the universe. It's God's patient plan that He's unraveling. And this creation that rebelled against Him, it's not just humanity, the whole thing, the rocks, the trees, the flowers, the bees, all of it has been soiled by it. And so through a refining fire, He will restore all things. Creation will pass away. A new earth will come and resurrection will come. This is God's plan. And so the pinnacle of that plan in the historical Jesus, the eternal Son in the flesh, is giving us a foretaste of that. He's the first piece of the new world in the old world. He's the first fruits of what is to come, the Scriptures tell us. The first piece of the harvest, so we know it's going to be sweet as we behold the One who has victory over the grave and the One who calls to you today, who beckons you, in whose name I call to you today to come to be forgiven to see His patience, to know His goodness. So in review, in review, we've talked about the Creator. We've talked about creation. We've talked about God's gift of life and humanity's rebellion, the fall. And this foundation then is going to help us to understand what's going on with wars and rumors of wars. We move now in the storyline of Scripture from the fall and necros, that is death, to the forming of the nations. We move from the beginning chapters of the Bible that I've been referencing to you 
And now would you open up your Bible and find your way to Genesis chapter 12. Before you get to Genesis chapter 12, you can make a pit stop in Genesis chapter 11 and look with your eyes at the account of the Tower of Babel. Babel is a monument of human rebellion. The rebellion that we read of in the beginning chapters of Genesis continues on and it spirals and spirals. Babel becomes the ultimate picture of it. On the heels of God's judgment in Genesis 6 through 10, uh, the flood, God establishes human government. Human government comes on scene here in this section of Genesis. And we see God gives the creation certain powers that ought not to belong to creation, but are given to creation because of the condition of creation. It's depravity. And so God gives to the creation the powers of capital punishment in Genesis 9. And, and there's a power of a kind of state that comes in Genesis 9 to impose consequence upon the creation. This is the age of, of, of government, an era that God brings in. Later, prophets and apostles would tell us more about this, like Paul in Romans 13 and Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, about God's purpose for government to curb evil through the exercise of punishment and the power of sword in society to subdue evil. It's a part of God's patient plan. He's, he's not letting us go Lord of the flies and rip everything apart. He's using these powers. He's using even rebellion like Babel as a part of patiently controlling the effects of the fall. Now follow me. The biblical storyline shows government coming, and with government coming, there's the increase of the effects of the fall. We see the powers of government are also corrupted. In Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, we see human powers using their power given by the Creator to reject the Creator. And in response, God sends this city, this corrupt government, this Babel into supernatural confusion. And it spirals out into the forming of the nations who then pass on their corrupt powers and birth nations that would know peace if they would live for God, but they lose peace and they find paranoia instead and they begin, the nations, fighting. Tribes fighting, towers fighting, territories fighting. Fallen Babel flows through the DNA of human powers in the earth. Systems, institutions, all the intersections woven into the things that humans touch are all stained by this. Sin isn't just within the heart of man. It ripples out into society and into the structures that we as sinners build in a fallen world. Now, the forming of the nations helps us to understand why the nations are at each other's neck. We, we see from the very beginning the children of our, of our parents. Uh, you read the account of Adam and Eve. You see the account of Cain and Abel. You see humanity is turned towards itself and turned against God. And so as humanity starts forming nations, and as God uses government to help control, humanity starts taking government to create war against government, and hence we have the phenomenon of wars and rumors of war. Now, into the storyline steps the faith of the nomad, and this is why I want to take you to Genesis chapter 12, because what God does is, while these nations are raging and growing and forming and fighting, God comes and he gets a nomad named Abram. God graciously elects Abram. Abram didn't have it coming. His life was a hot mess. You look at the account and everything about him is darkness. But God breathes life into his dark soul and makes him the father of this promise. Another word for promise is the word covenant. And I'll be using that, so keep that in mind. Promise, covenant. And God gives a promise, a covenant to Abram. 
He renames Abram Abraham. This change of his name means that he will be the father of a multitude. The, the, the twist in it is that Abram, the nomad, had no progeny. He had no children. And so God renames him because that's what he is going to do with him. He's going to turn him into the father of a nation. Not just any old nation like the nations that are warring against each other, but this nation will be a holy nation. This nation will be a nation of priests. What are priests? Priests are mediators. They are they're conflict resolution people. They, they, you, you go before them and they help solve a, a feud. Party one has a feud with party two. You get mediation, a priest to come to help mediate to bring the two together. Party one is the holy God. Party two is fallen humanity. God ordains to have priests in fallen humanity and raises them up to act as a nation physically in the earth to mediate these fallen powers and to call them to repentance and faith in him. This Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant that God makes with this nomad. Draw your eyes at the text and read in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to the nomad, Abraham, go forth from your country, from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's this hope of peace here. There is allusion to conflict here. There are those that will oppose. There is this promise that He'll bless those who do not. There is this language of peace. Language of progeny. It will be His seed. The promise of seed that goes back to Genesis. And the promise that He would bring this redemption through the seed. And oh, incidentally, we've jumped around in the storyline because I already told you about Jesus, but Jesus is the seed of Abram. He's the seed of the promise of Genesis 3. The story just keeps pointing to Him. I can go out of order because He's the center of the thing. He's the spoke that's turning the whole wheel. The promise, the covenant, is for a place, for a progeny, and for peace. Now when you look at the ancient world and when this was given, you can see where that place, the land of Israel, is and see how it is a land bridge for the nations at the time. This is where the nations pass through. This is where people trade. Everyone's coming through. Oh, what a strategic place to have a promised land in for the promise that was given because it's a place that will be effectively like the Internet. Uh, for those of us who are old enough, you remember when the Internet came out and that annoying sound, you know, and you got mail and all, you know, and it's like this, this thing. I don't know about you guys, but... My brother, he's kind of like nerdy and whatever. You know, he was all about it. I was like, this is stupid. Let's go outside and play. This will never catch on, you know. Uh, and it took over the whole world because it was strategically located in, in, in this now web that's going to connect everybody. And so too in the ancient world, you just locate your promise in this place through this people and this, this thing is going to spread. It's no wonder that even today the eyes of the world are constantly focused on what's going on in this place. It's strategically located. And so, so now then, this, this, this nomad is given this promise and his people are brought there. And as they come there, what we see is that Babel 
Genesis 11 becomes Babylon. Let's move quickly from the very beginning here, the forming of the nations, the faith of the nomad. Now we move to the fighting of the nations. Babel becomes Babylon. If you're new to the Bible and ancient geography, let me explain. The historic city of Babylonia, which is a literal place in the earth, becomes a symbol in scripture to describe dark forces and forces that are working behind nations. You see, lurking behind human nations are spiritual forces. Going back to the fall, humanity were not the only creatures, however, who were in the creation. Along with humanity, there were angels in the creation. In the Genesis account that I referred to, there's the story of the serpent, the symbol of the, the devil, the literal presence of the devil who comes into creation. We read in the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel, specifically and respectively, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, about the serpent, about Satan and his work in the creation to corrupt the creation and participate in this thing that we know as the fall. This is a, an important reminder as we're looking at current affairs and nations and wars and rumors of wars. It is an important reminder that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our weapons are not nuclear, they are supernatural. Those are the weapons that we have been equipped with as God's people for such a time as this. We've been called to engage with this great message, this good news that saves people who are perishing in the patient plan of God. Now, Ezekiel, I was talking about Ezekiel a moment ago, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, and the storyline of dark forces behind the fighting of the nations. Speaking of Ezekiel, now move from Genesis and find your way into the book of Ezekiel. When you get to the book of Ezekiel, throw a, a finger in the book of Ezekiel, specifically chapter 38. Or if you got one of these fancy ribbons, throw that little ribbon in there. That's what I'm going to do. And find your way to the book that comes after Ezekiel. It is the book of Daniel. We're going to start with Daniel. We're going to jump to Ezekiel. We're going to look at some cool eschatology this morning. Daniel is a prophet of Israel who was exiled in Babylon. Again, a literal place that takes on the picture of a symbol for the dark forces that work behind the scenes in the nations to bring wars and rumors of wars. Like the millions in Ukraine who are on the run, Daniel was a prophet who was on the run. In fact, he was even worse taken from his land. He is behind enemy lines. He is subject to a pagan ruler. And God in his grace gives these visions of last days. And he uses imagery of present days to be able to show Daniel some things that are going to take place in his life and in things beyond his life. I shared with you in a recent installment of our sermon series through the post-exilic prophets how, how the prophets kind of have these uh, mountaintops and how there are this terrain in between the mountaintops that from their vantage point they don't quite see. So in Daniel, he sees things in front of him in the present that are immediate to Israel. But there are elements overlapping to it that speak of a Messiah and speak of a kingdom and speak of an era of wrath and speak of a final battle and war and all these things that people really like to geek out on when they're talking about eschatology and end times. Well, Daniel chapter 2. Draw your eyes at the text of Daniel 2. Draw your eyes at verse 28. Oh, I love verse 28 because it's reminding us that apocalyptic genre and eschatology isn't meant to be abstract. Verse 28 of Daniel chapter 2, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, 
and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar, that's the aforementioned pagan ruler, what will take place in the latter days. And this was your dream and visions in your mind while in your bed. God gives the prophet this revelation. He uses him to unpack things. By the inspiration of the Spirit, this has been preserved in the text for God's people through the ages so that we are not left in the dark and we have sufficient revelation to understand such a time as this. For sake of time, move forward to verse 31. Here we see, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, a statue that was large and of extraordinary splendor, and was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. And the head of the statue was made of fine gold, and its, its breast and its arms were silver, and its belly and its thighs were bronze, and its legs were of iron, and its feet partly iron and partly of clay. Now, as you keep reading, there's not time, we're just surveying, but God reveals the meaning of the vision, and I'll tell you about it. The figure, or, or the statue, it, it symbolizes a series of nations that go against God's people. Notice the elements are decreasing in their value. We move from gold to silver to bronze to iron to clay. It's decreasing. If I said, I have a gift of clay for you, you know, it's like, oh, that's weird. You know, I have a golden gift that I've brought back. You know, oh, I would like to have that. It's decreasing in value. Daniel identifies Nebuchadnezzar with the head of gold. And then he moves into these future kingdoms that are tied to Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So you have in succession, and if you know your world history, you go, oh yeah, that is how it happens in world history. You have the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, uh, you have the Greek Empire, and you have the Roman Empire. And so this statue serves as a symbol of these empires. And then finally, there is a mysterious fifth empire that is pictured in the Ten Toes, and it's said to be of clay and mixed with iron giving the impression that the fifth empire is warring against God's people in a revised version of the fourth empire. It's mixed in, you see, that Roman empire. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 34. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hands and it was struck. It struck the statue and the feet of iron and the clay and it crushed them. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time like chaff and the summer threshing floors, and the wind carrying them away, so that there was not a trace of them that was found. And the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So there is this supernatural, out-of-nowhere rock that comes, and boom, gets rid of the whole thing. All of the wars and the rumors of the war, they're coming to an end. It's what we saw in Peter. God's being patient with all these wars. He's being patient with this rebellion. But a day is coming when it will be over. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 41. You saw the feet and the toes, partly of the potter's clay, partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom. It will have the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed in with the common clay. And the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of pottery. And so the kingdom will be strong and some of it will be brittle. And then you saw the iron and it mixed with the common clay and they combined with one another in the seed of men and they will not adhere to one another even as iron doesn't combine with pottery. In the days of the kings... Of the God of heaven, he will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw a stone that was cut from the mountain without hands, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is, is true, and its uh, interpretation is trustworthy, the text says. 
Now, many scholars have contrasted Nebuchadnezzar's dream that takes place here in Daniel chapter 2 with the vision and the imagery in Daniel chapter 7. And in fact, you have a graphic up here that's depicting Daniel 7 at the bottom, paralleled with Daniel chapter 2. The symbolism of these beast figures that appear later overlap with these, and these visions are telescoping on top as, as, as this apocalypse, this revelation given to the prophet, is reminding him, look, there's going to be these nations. There's going to be these wars, and God is going to bring them all to an end. The book of Revelation describes scenes and symbols using the imagery of Daniel and also Ezekiel. The book of Revelation that we have in the New Testament gives us uh, details of a future coming battle, a brouhaha where it all ends. In Revelation 17, we, we read of an antichrist and the dark forces behind these nations. Uh, and, and he's going to lead a coalition. We read in Revelation 17 of, get this, 10 nations, which matches ten toes of Daniel. In verse 14, uh, Jesus comes with his kingdom in Revelation 17, and he confronts it. And this fits the imagery here of Daniel and the rock formed without hands that smashes the rebellion of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, this supernatural rock that comes from heaven and just, boom, puts the kibosh on it. That's what we see in Revelation. In fact, in Daniel 7, there's a final beast that is overcome with this final brouhaha. And we read about how its body is burned. And then, get this, on the lips of Daniel, the Son of Man comes from heaven in the clouds. You can look at Daniel 7.13. You've got Daniel in front of you. He approached the Ancient of Days and he was led into his presence. And this man, look at, Dan look at Daniel 7.14. He's given authority and glory and, and sovereign power. And then look at the text, all the nations of the earth fall down. They all fall down. The fighting is over. The kingdom that he rules with is everlasting and indestructible. This language of Daniel fits with revelation and the return of Christ. Uh, this book that we have, that we call the Bible, has 66 books in it. It correlates with itself. It gives you different details as you keep reading the storyline so that you have this progressive revelation and you get more out of it. It's kind of like watching a, a saga of movies and you start filling in details. And, you know, that last Spider-Man movie, that was crazy. And they all come together and you're like, no way, that's Tobey Maguire, what? You know, that's what happens in Revelation. It's like you get Daniel and Ezekiel and gospel accounts and boom, here you see it. There's a Messiah, the Son of Man, who is coming. Oh, Jesus, Olivet Discourse, what we began with. Oh, Jesus, his favorite self-designation of himself in the Gospel accounts is the Son of Man, the rider of the clouds of heaven. Now, I ask you to keep a finger in Ezekiel or keep a ribbon if you're fancy with it in Ezekiel. Turn back to Ezekiel and find your way to chapter 38. So we're correlating our Bibles. That's what we're doing. We're following the storyline of the Bible and we're doing some correlation to see what's going to happen in the end. There's going to be a whole bunch of nations trying to crush and kill. God's people in the place, the progeny, are going to be in the center of this thing. And, 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 and God is going to use all of that as a part of his Messiah being established on a throne and bringing peace to the whole creation. Now, Daniel and Ezekiel, this is exile. Ezekiel is like Daniel in this regard. He's experiencing exile. Babylon has come. It's 597 approximately B.C., and uh, Ezekiel is getting all kinds of uh, visions and revelation from God that's filling in some gaps to our understanding of what the heck is going on in the world. 
His visions, Ezekiel's, move from horror to hope. They move from condemnation to consolation. They're kind of bipolar in that way. If you don't know how to read them rightly, you're like, are you mad? Are you not? You know, what's going to happen? And, and through those oracles, you read about the nations. And it fits this storyline from the fall where you would see these nations that are going to rage against the children of the nomad. Ezekiel chapter 38, draw your eyes at the text, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face towards Gog, the land, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, Tubal, prophesy against him. And say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you about, and I will put hooks in your jaws, and I'll bring you out, and all your army and horses and horsemen, and all of them splendidly attired in a great company with a buckler and a shield, and all of them wielding swords. Persia, Ethiopia, put with them, all of them with a shield and a helmet. Gomer, with all your troops. Bet to Garma and the remote parts of the north, and your troops and many people with you, be prepared and prepare yourself and all your companies that are assembled about you and you guard from them after many days you will be summoned and in the latter years you will come to the land that is restored from the sword whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel which have been a continual waste but its people were brought up from the nations and they are living surely all of them. What is going on in the text? Well, here we read of nations coming together. Here we read of rebellion. Here we read of God using the children of the nomad in the land, the progeny, the place, the promise of peace, and he's bringing it to fruition. It would look like it's out of control. It would look like it's chaos. If you're trying to make sense out of it by watching the news, you get all these different spin zones on it, and you go, what is going on? But God is using the rebellion for his purposes. Here we read of nations fighting against his people. That's the, that's the storyline of the Bible. And ultimately, it's a, a, it's a story that we need to put ourselves in and remember that we would be a part of the rebel army raging against him if it weren't by his grace to come and get us and rescue us. So this rebellion here, though, what is interesting for Ezekiel 38 and why people are going to this text with the month that we have had with what's going on in the Ukraine and whatnot is this mention of Gog, this mention of Magog. Now, Gog is a, is a title for a ruler, a tyrant. Magog is a, is a name for the place that he is from. Gog is from Magog. There's not time to read the whole chapter, but as you see from the snippet that we read, this Gog guy leads the nations to come together to wage war against God's people Israel. We read in the text that he is from the far north. Now I showed you a map already of Israel. Do you remember what is on the far north of Israel? Uh, well, it's sort of the place that we're talking about in our news right now, isn't it? When you go north of Israel, prophecy scholars then all of a sudden are going, oh man, there's all this crazy stuff going on in the north, and these people really hate Israel. Uh, what are we watching? What are we witnessing in our news? Prophecy scholars uh, think that many of the, the countries that are referenced here are, are in reference to the Stan countries, you know, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan all former constituents of the Soviet Union, which are united in the religion of Islam with a deep history of anti-Semitism. So it's easy to look at the map and start thinking, hey, with an alliance like that, uh, 
it's no wonder that people are feeling tense. It's so easy how it could just start popping off. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Togarma, that's Turkey. Magog, Central Asia, the Islamic Southern Republics of the former Soviet Union. Persia, that's Iran. Ethiopia, Kush, that's the Sudan. We have Libya. Now, I mean, you start reading these texts and we go, oh, well, there's this prophecy about all this popping off. Now, regardless of the exact locations, and people spill a lot of ink and do a lot of speculation, and that's not the purpose of any of this, uh, what Magog, Tubal, Meshach, and so on and so forth are, it's somewhere generally in this area. And we see this conflict in, in this area. And we see overtures in the Islamic world with the fall of Soviet Union and new alliances forming and, and the West and NATO and these sorts of things. And if you haven't been involved in any conversations yet, just go online and Google. Here's an example. This is a Rolling Stone article. The Christians who think the Ukraine invasion means Jesus is returning to earth. Now, I have no idea. That's not the point of us going into this. The point of us going into this is to do eschatology, to study God's word, to see his word in context taught. That we be not caught off guard, that we know, look, our hope isn't in po the politicians and the powers to figure this stuff out. It's not hard to see alliances forming. It's not hard to see the things that we read inside of Scripture, Armageddon and whatnot forming. Think of Armageddon. We recently were studying that in our series in Zechariah. Mount Megiddo and the prophecy of Revelation chapter 16. There's going to be a multitude. There's going to be a battle. There's the nations from the fall, from Genesis 3, they're forming, they're raging. The beast that we read about in the book of Revelation, also called the Antichrist, who rises out of the sea and has ten horns, Revelation 13. Ten Daniel. And so all these images, they start coming together in this kaleidoscope, a one-world government of globalism and fallen powers that's lining up. And yeah, it's eerie because we even hear politicians recently talking about uh, uh, one world government and uh, Twitter's exploding. And you're, you're looking at this, you're going, what is going on? Now let's move to where we began the Olivet Discourse. You need to go to the right. You need to find your way out of our First Testament and into the Second Testament, into the Gospel of Matthew in the 24th chapter. Eschatology is not meant to be abstract. Studying the last things is not meant to be abstract. It's meant to be practical and real. Jesus gathers his disciples there on the Mount of Olives. He's pouring his heart out to them as he's talking about the last days and nations fighting and rumors of war and war. It was intended to be practical toward them. It was intended further in the inspiration of the Spirit that we would have this text, in particular for the early Jewish audience to know if this is our Messiah, if this is the prophesied Son of Man, if this is the one who has come that we read about in the Hebrew Bible, then why, he, why wasn't he that great rock that came and smashed the, the statue that we read about in prophecy? Why, why didn't that happen? And you go back and you read the text of Scripture and you read these accounts and they're answering those questions. It's meant to be practical so that God's people would understand the patience of God. He's coming. The rock will come. The rider of the clouds will come. And he'll put an end to all the shenanigans in the earth. He will. He will. And in the meantime, we can expect war and rumor of war. Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. 
And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes, and all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they'll deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all of the nations because of my name. Verse 11, for sake of time, there's false prophets arising that mislead many. Look at verse 15, for sake of time, who is he referencing? Daniel the prophet, the abomination of desolation, the end times. Verse 22, skip for sake of time, he says, unless these days of peril are cut short, no one would be saved, but for sake of the elect, God's people Israel, these days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe, for many false Christs and false prophets will arise, and they will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. I'm preparing you for this. It's preserved in Scripture. So God's people aren't panicked, but they are participating in the patient program of God in these last days. I'm not worried about what I see going on in the world because my God is greater, my God is stronger, my God is sovereign. I'm not worried and distracted by it. It just keeps reminding me of how in control he is and how much I need him. And the world is going to look at it and the world's going to say, where is your God? Look at those people suffering in Ukraine. I read a horrible article this week of, uh, it was a really jaded journalist who was attacking Christians. How dare you send your missionaries down there? You know, there's the Christians. When the world is at war, they show up with gospel tracts telling people that they're going to go to hell and whatever. And, and, here, and they're taking advantage of this crisis. It was so confused and so twisted and so warped. You see the church there. You see the church there on the ground. We, we had a, a, a man from there share with us about you know, stories of people on the ground. Where is your God in the midst of evil, the so-called problem of evil? Let me tell you, my God is there, and my God is patiently waiting. My God is unfolding a plan. The objection only works if God's not doing something. The objection, therefore, presumes that God is not there, that God is not up to something, that there's not a greater good, that there's not a plan. By golly, there is, and we have every reason to believe the conflict will conclude. The chaos will come to consummation. The war will actually be turned to worship. Look at verse 27 in the text of the Olivet Discourse. Lightning comes from the east, flashes to the west. So the coming of the Son of Man will be. Where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Look at Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. You start reading of the cosmic signs of what we saw in Peter. And the sign, verse 30, Matthew 24, 30, of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. That's the one Daniel, the Son of Man figure, Ezekiel and the prophets. He will come and the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will be happy for His coming because they will realize they're on the wrong side of things. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And He will send forth the angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Here we read the final point on your outline, the finale and the new earth. Skip ahead in the text. The Olivet Discourse is two long chapters, so move from 24 into chapter 25. Verse 31, the Son of Man comes, verse 31, Matthew 25 says, and all the angels with him, 
and he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on the right and he'll put the goats on the left and the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is the teaching of the Olivet Discourse. This is the teaching that he's, he's giving his disciples. He wants them to know as he is standing on that Mount of Olives in the future one day, Jesus' toes will be on that very mountain. He will come back, and from that place, things will be brought to peace. We saw in our study of the book of Zechariah, I'll put it in front of you to jar your memories, Zechariah 14, verses 3 and 4 and verse 9, the reference of the Messiah who would come and who would stand on the Mount of Olives and would bring this day. And just think, there Jesus is, the eternal Son in the flesh, the one who's fulfilling all these prophecies, and there he is on that mountain talking to them about coming back on that mountain. How cool is that? How wild is that? And they were missing it. They were missing it. He would go to his death. They would betray him. They, they would run. And you, you follow the account. And what does he do as a faithful shepherd? He goes and gets them. He forgives their betrayal. He informs their misunderstanding. He opens their eyes to see. And he commissions them the scattered, tattered, confused disciples to go into the world and entrust them with this message that now, by, by extension, has been entrusted to us. This is our message to the evening news. There will be lots of wars. There will be lots of death. There will be lots of suffering. Behold the one who suffered on the cross to remedy it all. That is a message that is foolishness to the world that is perishing. But that is our message. That is our mojo. That is our jam. That's what we want to hear when we gather. That's what we want to sing about. That's what we want to praise. That's why we study end times. Because it informs our present time and our hope in the one who is to come. You read the end of the book of Revelation. There's not time to do it. But Revelation 19 and you see him coming on the horse and you, you, you see him riding down and you see him putting the kibosh on the nations and you see all the fighting of the nations that we saw from the very beginning of the book of Genesis is brought to an end. The hope that we have to have in times such as these is in our King who has come and is coming again and who told us to pray for His kingdom to come and told us to call the creation to repentance and faith in Him. I say this because I see people clamoring and trying to make sense out of it. And you watch it in the world, and you would expect it from the world. Political theorist Francis Fukama uh, famously argued and proclaimed in the 1990s, uh, he wrote, wrote a book on this, uh, Fukuyama, uh, he's a popular political theorist, you could Google him, and in the 90s he was talking about, we've, we're reaching an era of peace. You know, we've got this in the 90s, right? We've got free markets, liberal democracies, globalized post-conflict societies. We've got this. We are going to enter into an era of peace in the 90s. And then 2011, you know, 2001, September 11th happened. It's like, oh yeah, where's that peace, buddy? Here's a list of some conflicts in the 21st century. You heard about Afghanistan and Nigeria and Boko Haram, Sudan, Yemen, Thailand. Pakistan, Syria's civil war, hundreds of thousands of people slaughtered and murdered. Is our, is our hope in the government? Is our hope in technology? Is our, is our hope in the politicians? Is our, is our hope in the media to make sense out of it? No, the Bible explains this to us. 
This is, this is Romans 1 and 2 and 3 and God giving them over to their depraved mind. This is what humanity does. It's rebelled against the one who designed the thing. And so the design for peace and love and harmony is going to erupt this way. We take the gift of technology and we will use it to kill ourselves and the planet. That's what the fallen children of Adam and Eve do. But the seed of promise that has come in the Son is rescuing the children of Adam by the promise of Abram in the great king descended from David who is rescuing a people for himself. And we, church, are a part of that people. And for you who are a part of Delray Church here, we have been called and we have been placed to be an outpost in these last days to herald Him who has come. We have come to be not only an outpost, but a celebration. And so we come to hear Him proclaimed. We come to hear ourselves called to Him. And we come to grab our cups and celebrate the great table that we have before us that has been prepared by Him. We were told by the great Apostle Paul that this is a cup that is eschatological. He says when you participate in this, you're not only reflecting back on history, but you are looking into the future and proclaiming the one who has come. Revelation 19, you see him come. Revelation 20, you see him set up his kingdom. It's said in Revelation 20 to last for a period of a thousand years. And at the very end of his kingdom on earth being established, we read in Revelation 20 verse 7, of Satan going out into the creation again, and it tells us that he will deceive the nations from the four corners of the earth. And we read in Revelation 20, verse 8, that Gog and Magog rise up again, and there's a final brouhaha even after the brouhaha. And there we are reminded that even with Christ on the throne, the great King of David, humanity will still rebel against him. Because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Even with the greatest politician on the throne, depraved humanity will still persist in rebellion. And we would be participators in it if he was not broken for us. And so as we take the bread and we put it in our mouth and we feel it crunch, we're reminded of the wrath and the crushing that belonged to us, but he took it upon himself. Let's eat. The bread of the table comes from a picture of the bread of the Passover where God's wrath was poured out and he liberated the children of the nomad, Abram, to bring them to the place in the Exodus, to make them into the priests so that they would be those mediators. And the Messiah was sent to the people. The Roman Empire of the, of the beast, of the statue that we read about, raged and crushed the Messiah and killed him. The Messiah rose up from the grave and showed the, the flaw and the fallacy and the impotency of the Roman Empire and all the empires of men. Our technology will never conquer death. Our technology will never conquer sin. We will never come up with a chip that can give you new life. It'll never happen. But this cup is that. This cup gives us new life. So as we take the cup and we drink it, we remember the one who drank the wrath for us. Let's drink. I'm going to pray. 
We're going to stand. We're going to sing. We've come to hear of him. You've been told of him. We trust that God, through the proclamation of his word, through the sound teaching of what he's revealed in his word, will move through it. Through the celebration of these elements, he reminds us there's something mysterious that takes place when we gather in his name as brothers and sisters, when we seek him in repentance and faith and love. Let's pray, let's seek him, that we would, as I said earlier, leave this place different from when we entered, renewed for the mission field that has been given to us, renewed for the time in history and prophecy of which we have been placed to proclaim the true king, the true king who will overthrow all nations, and the true king that now will overthrow your heart and renew you and save you and, and, and transform you and have his way with you, you'll never regret it. Let's seek him, church. Lord, we thank you uh, for the gift of communion. We thank you for the ministry of your word. We thank you for the power of your spirit through your word at work in us. Lord, I pray that you would take the truths that we have discussed and massage them into our hearts. More than learning prophecy, uh, Lord, that we would learn humility and that we would come before you this day and confess our sins, for they are many. And feel our guilt lifted, our burdens lifted. Uh, Lord, not just feel it, but that it would really happen. That there would be no going through the motions or uh, no, no mistrust uh, uh, in, in, in the things of you where we might mistake that we have trusted you when we haven't. Lord, do a work in, in Jesus' name within your church today, I pray. And as we seek you to this end, uh, Lord, as I, as I intercede now on behalf of your people, uh, Lord, we now come to sing, and we thank you for the gift of song. You are, are worthy to be praised, to be sung to, and so as we sing, Lord, we pray that you would continue ministering to us through the word and through the table and through this prayer. In Christ's name, amen.